Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. And no women, you will wow. Just declaim a few lines. Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSCF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Every Sunday at 8 and 8, archived here at Kansas 785 Live, as well as on my own website, ShannonJRiley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSCF every Sunday, 8 to 8. Hello, hello, and welcome to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on 75live.com, ASEF Digital Radio. It is my pleasure to be here. My name is Shannon Riley, and I am uh, not a Shakespeare scholar, but a Shakespeare devotee. I like to talk about William Shakespeare and the things he wrote, and I get very excited when the topic of Shakespeare comes up. And KSEF is nice enough to allow me to come to you on the Sundays at 8 to talk a little bit about the life and works of William Shakespeare. So thank you, Carice, and 75live.com. And a very exciting note, if you've missed any of my past podcasts, you can see them all archived at KSEF Digital Radio. You can also find them at my website, ShannonJRiley.com. That's also where you can email me about the show. You can email me at Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. Riley is spelled R-E-I-L-L-Y. I'd love to talk to anyone who would like to talk about the show. You can also check out my website, look at my plays, my short stories, and so forth, and see if there's anything there that you might want to check out. In addition, I'm happy to announce today that we are available on Apple. Anywhere you get your podcasts, you can now find Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. So I'm really excited about that. We've already had multiple downloads, and I'm honored to uh, be there on Apple. And I want to thank Carice of 75live.com for making that happen. All right. Today, we're continuing to talk about the works of William Shakespeare, and I'm going to continue to use the new format. I'm going to give you the synopsis, but rather than wait and talk about the play after the synopsis, I'm going to do it while I'm doing the synopsis, and uh, I think that kind of helps clarify the show a little bit more. And today, we are up to Henry the Fourth, Part Two. This is a play that was written probably around 1595 to 1599, somewhere in that area, when it was published in 1600. This is an intended sequel to Henry IV, Part 1, that I talked about last week. But just like Henry IV, Part 1, Henry IV, Part 2 has very little to do with Henry IV. It's very interesting, but Shakespeare's playing a long game here. He's writing these plays, really, about the life and times of Henry V. And we focus more on young Henry V and his friends and cohorts than we do on the king himself. And Henry IV, Part 2 is considered to be a little bit less successful. It certainly was in Shakespeare's time. It was only published once, whereas Henry the Fourth Part One was published multiple times. But it's still a very, very good play. And part of what makes it such a good play is again, the reintroduction of the character of Falstaff, who really takes on a life of his own. He becomes the most powerful character in Shakespeare's canon. And to this day, he is still considered the funniest character Shakespeare ever wrote. And he appears again in Henry IV, Part Two. As always, before we get too far along, I like to stop for a moment 
and introduce my boy Finn as he tells us about... And now, the Shakespeare Quote of the Week. That's right, the Shakespeare Quote of the Week. And once again, we are talking, of course, about Henry IV Part Two, And there's some great quotes in here. Actually, quotes that are part of our common lexicon today. For instance, this quote. He hath eaten me out of house and home from Act 2, Scene 1. Eaten me out of house and home. Anyone as a teenager has said that. We also have uneasy lies ahead that wears the crown. Act 3, Scene 1. And have we not heard the chimes at midnight. Act 3, Scene 2. There's so many great quotes, and we're really approaching the zenith of Shakespeare's career as we finish this history cycle, because he's now going to be moving into some of his greatest plays. Now, i got to make a quick confession here. I want to do these in roughly the order of when these plays were written, but I'm kind of cheating today because Henry IV, Part Two, probably was stopped so that Shakespeare could write The Merry Wives of Windsor. This is a play about Falstaff, and I'm going to talk about it after I finish this Henry ad, this series of four plays, of which we're on the third right now. But I'm going to wait and talk about it afterwards because I really want to stay on this line of the histories. But there is a story that I really love, and it just shows how powerful Falstaff really became. The Merry Wives of Windsor is one of Shakespeare's only original tales. And he wrote it because it is said Queen Elizabeth herself requested, give me a play about Falstaff. When the Queen herself asked for a play about Falstaff, you write a play about Falstaff. You just do. And in this particular case, it was the most popular character of Shakespeare's canon. And this leads to one of his biggest problems, and that's the comic Will Kemp, who played Falstaff, whose head got way out of proportion, and he ended up leaving the company after Henry IV Part II and before Henry V, which causes a problem with the play itself which I'll talk about as we go through it. Now let's start with a quick synopsis of the play. First of all, as we ended Henry IV Part One, we ended with the war still going on. There are some rebels who are trying to take the crown away from Henry IV. Henry himself took the crown from Richard II, and many people have felt that it was not right, it was not fair, and the king should not be king of England. This is something that dogs Henry his entire life and causes him to feel very illegitimate. And because of that, Henry is constantly worried about being usurped. He's worried his son will never take the crown himself. This fear drives Henry through both plays, Henry IV. And so Henry IV is in the middle still of this uprising. But his battle front is stretched thin. They are still dealing with the French they're not an all-out war with the French, but there is constant skirmishes with the French. There's constant skirmishes with the Irish and the Scottish. So Henry is really pulled thin in trying to defend himself against this attack. Now, Northumberland, his son, Hotspur, Henry Percy was his name, but he was called Hotspur, was killed in Henry IV Part One towards the end by Hal, who will eventually become Henry V. Northumberland still is upset and wants to take the king out, even though he failed to show up for the battle where his son died. So the play opens with this accounting. Northumberland hears from a rumor that his son did indeed survive and won the war and Henry himself was killed. Turns out that that's not true. And when he learns of that, he's driven to go and fight and rejoin with the, with the rebels against Henry IV. Meanwhile, Hal's association with Falstaff is causing a great deal of problems. And so his father sends the Lord Chief Justice to confront Falstaff and tell him that he is 
improper and should stay away from Prince Hal. Falstaff doesn't care. Simply says to him, you are an old man. You don't know what it's like to have pleasure. And when the Lord Chief Justice says, you're older than I am, Falstaff says, no, but I still understand pleasure. And that's understanding pleasure that keeps me young. So he refuses to do anything about his association with Hal. So the Chief Justice says, the good times with Hal are over. And the king has ordered him to put together an army and march against the rebels. Anyone who knows Falstaff knows he is not a good soldier. And the Lord Chief Justice is hoping that is very true and will lead to his death. Meanwhile, the main people who are fighting against Henry IV are an archbishop, the Lord Hastings, Marlbury, and Bardolph. And they're planning their offensive. And they're concerned that Northumberland will once again leave them high and dry and not fight in this battle. And if he does, they could lose. But they're pretty convinced they're going to win anyway, simply because Henry's forces are too spread out and unable to keep up with all the fronts they are fighting on. Meanwhile, into Act 2, Mistress Quickly, who owns the East Chip Inn, the Boar's Head, where Falstaff and his friends hang out, is furious with him and brings along two people to arrest Falstaff for all the money he owes her. They are two sheriffs by the name of Fang and Snare. There are some great names in this play, by the way. Shakespeare borrows this idea from the morality plays where names are used to describe the personality or characters that these people are. Bang and Snare are only two of the funny names you're going to encounter in this play, and they have all, of course, revolve around Falstaff. When they come to a restroom, Falstaff gets angry. They fight. They have a quarrel in the street. And who should come along but none other than the Lord Chief Justice, who says, why are you in the street, fat knight? Why aren't you gathering your army and marching against the rebels? Falstaff dismisses him, pulls Mistress Quickly aside and says, meet me tonight. Let's have dinner and let me profess my love to you as I properly should. And so she dismisses her charges and plans to meet and have a date with Falstaff. Meanwhile, her friend, Dahl Tearsheet, again, another great name, goes to Hal and his friends Poins and says, you guys should show up to that date in disguise and listen to the things Falstaff says about you when he thinks you're not around. Now back on the battlefront, Hotspur's father, Northumberland, has decided no matter what, he is gonna go into battle, join the rebels and defeat Henry IV on the battlefield. And he tells his daughter-in-law, now a widow since Hotspur is dead, that he will go and avenge his son's name. She begs him not to do this. Just because his son has died does not mean he has to save his honor. Protect his life. This campaign is doomed. Leave England. Retreat into Scotland. And Northumberland does. He packs up, heads to, North, heads to Scotland, leaving once again the rebels holding the bag without Northumberland to fight with his sizable army beside them. Meanwhile, Falstaff has his date with Mistress Quickly, and not knowing that he's being eavesdropped on by Hal and Poins, he talks about how silly the prince is and how what a wastrel he is, and without him, the prince would be nowhere and nothing. Poins, the friend of Hal's, hiding in secret and also in disguise, has a great quote here. He says, is it not strange that the desire should so many years outlive performance? <laughs> Any older man understands what he's talking about there. When Hal can't take Falstaff running him down any further, he jumps out and reveals himself. And once again, Falstaff shows what quick wit he is when he says, Oh no, you don't understand, Hal. I only run you down in front of the wicked so that the wicked will stay away from you and have no love for you. I do this to protect you. 
Falstaff has the gift of gab, and he's still the most popular character in Shakespeare. Meanwhile, in Act Three, a very weary and very ill Henry IV considers what lies ahead for him. He's getting older, he's weak, he's been sickly, and he doesn't think he's going to survive too much longer. In real life, Henry, towards the end of his life, Henry IV, suffered very many bouts of illness and was confined to his bed many times. It's also said that he had some kind of a pox or maybe just severe cirrhosis, but his face is disfigured. It's hard for him to talk and he's in constant pain. Shakespeare doesn't talk about that side of Henry. He only seems to point out that he's old and ailing and he's worried that he will be defeated and his son will never inherit the crown. The Lord Warwick shows up and insists that everything is gonna be all right, that indeed they are going to defeat the rebels. But Henry, still thinking Northumberland and his armies are going to join the rebels, is convinced that he's doomed because once Northumberland's vast army joins the rebels, he will not be able to overcome them. And he's convinced his crown is lost. Meanwhile, in Gloucestershire, Shallow and his cousin Silence, two more great character names, these are two justices of the peace, and they are reminiscing with the arriving Falstaff who's come together to try to raise his army. These two, Justices of the Peace, are old friends of Falstaff. They used to drink and party together, and they're going to try and work together to try and raise an army to fight in the king's name. They bring together a ragtag group to be interviewed as possible members of Falstaff's fighting force. And here are the names of these people. These are great names. There's Moldy, Shadow, Wart, Feeble, and Bullcalf. <laughs> and these people, these horrible men, tried desperately not to be conscripted. Even two of them pay a bribe just to be let out of fighting in the army. It's not a problem for Falstaff. He takes a bribe and lets two of them leave, keeps the others, and knows that he can take the time that he needs to take to raise the army. So if it takes too long, he doesn't have to go fight. That's typical Falstaff. The audience would have loved this guy. Uh, we're going to take a short break because I'm, I'm a little over time here and I'm going to come back with Act 4 and 5 and talk a little bit of the story behind the play on Shannon Shakespeare Shunday as we move forward with Henry IV, Part 2. I'll see you on the other side. Right here is where I would say now for a brief word from our sponsors, but I'm just sitting here waiting for you to put words in my mouth. So for advertising opportunities, go to 785live.com. to present KSEF Digital Radio, Topeka, Kansas. That's the thing you're listening to right now. And we're celebrating everything local and everything Topeka. Learn more at 785live.com. And thanks for tuning in. Hello and welcome back to second half of our Shannon Shakespeare Shunday for this talk on Henry IV, part two, a very spirited history play that wasn't quite as successful as its first show, but it's setting up for everything that will happen in his biggest history play of all time, Henry V, which we'll talk about next week. Now, we're up to Act 4, and in Act 4, we're going to look now at the rebels. This is how it starts. It starts with the gathering of the troops in Yorkshire. 
It's the Archbishop of York, it's Marlbury, and it's Hastings, and they've just learned that Northumberland, with his army, has retreated into Scotland. Westmoreland, an aide to King Henry IV, arrives with an offer of a truce from King Henry. It's going to be given in the form of his son, Prince John. Now, Prince John steps into the fray. He's the third son of Henry IV. He's younger than Hal, but since Hal is off drinking and being inappropriate, they turn now to John to try to settle this fight. So he convinces these three leaders of the rebels to follow them into John's camp under a flag of truce so they can talk about a peace treaty. Let me tell you something. Prince John in this play, and it's the only play where this particular Prince John is seen, is a treacherous fella. He is smart, he is dubious, and he is dangerous. And you find out why. First of all, John welcomes these people into his camp and tells them that all their grievances are going to be met. Everything will be settled. We're going to go back as friends. Any disagreements they had about land will be given back. Any disagreements they had about taxes will be given back. They will immediately make all things good. Now, Hastings and the Archbishop of York are relieved. Without Northumberland's forces, they weren't certain that they could possibly have survived the battle anyway. But Mulberry is more skeptical. And he also brings up the fact that he doesn't think Prince John's father, Henry IV, should be on the throne in the first place. But they decide that discretion is a better part of valor, as mentioned in Henry IV, Part One, And they say, we will disperse our troops if you disperse yours. John sends to have his troops dispersed, and the rebels do the same. But John's already planned for this. His army does not disperse. They simply move out of sight. And when the rebels dismiss their army, they return. And immediately, John has the three rebels arrested and condemns them to death. And they say this isn't fair. We bargained with you fairly, honestly. We thought your word was honor. How can you do this to us? John said, how can I possibly trade fair and honorable deals with traitors, with rebels of the good and right king, Henry IV? And he has the three of them executed. Immediately now, all rebellion is finished, and Henry IV's crown is saved. All by the act of Prince John, not Prince Al, who would become Henry V, but his younger brother, Prince John, and all through a very clever deception. So it begs the question, with Henry taking the crown from Richard II in the first place, which was considered wrong, is it now being kept through an equally devious and dangerous choice? You find out in Henry V. Meanwhile, in the king's palace, he is going more and more ill and they decide to take him to his bed after he has a terrible stroke. Lying in bed dying, Prince Hal learns on the streets of London that his father is close to death. Hal is beside himself with guilt. He feels terrible for abandoning him again. He decides to immediately return and make peace with his father before he dies. He feels absolutely guilty for everything, for abandoning his father, for not continuing the fight, and for returning to his wicked ways. When Hal arrives back at the palace, he finds his father asleep in bed after suffering a stroke and possibly about to die. Laying next to him on a pillow is his crown. Hal takes the crown, carries it into another room and puts it on to see what it was like to be a king. He immediately feels overwhelmed by the presence of the crown, feels that he cannot possibly ever lead and that he will fail his country. At that point, his father wakes up, noticing the crown gone, screams for who has stolen his crown. 
Hal returns to his room with the crown, saying, I took it, father. And immediately Henry calls him greedy. He wants to take his crown before he's even dead. And how he feels pity for his loving England, which will suffer surely under the reign of his eldest son. But Hal begs his father's forgiveness, says he took the crown only to condemn it for its weight had killed him and will surely kill himself. He says that he only dreams of becoming the king that his father was. Henry IV forgives Hal. They have a moment of peace and reconciliation. Then Henry dies. Hal is immediately taken to be crowned King Henry V. In Act 5, we find Falstaff still at Shadow's home in Gloucester. He is looking around his old friend's home, notices there's a lot of valuable things there, and decides he's got to figure out a way to embezzle some wealth from Shadow before he moves on and leaves. While back in London at the palace, everybody has learned that Henry has died, and now his son Hal will become Henry V. The Lord Chief Justice is terrified. He thinks he's finished and will be destroyed simply because he followed his father's wishes, had once arrested Hal himself, and had even gone so far as to chastise his dear friend Falstaff. He thinks he's finished and he will pay the price for it. Hal arrives just before the coronation thanks him for everything he has done and tells the Lord Chief Justice that he will rely on him for great sage advice as a father would give to his son, that all is forgiven. He was wrong for behaving in the way he had for so many years. Back at Shallow's place, Falstaff learns that his good friend Hal is now the King of England. Certain this means that his fortunes have turned for the better, he orders his horse and rides all night long so he can reach London in time for the coronation. He knows he will be appointed some great office, maybe even the Lord Chief Chancellor himself. So when he arrives in London, just as Henry himself is leaving his coronation from Westminster Abbey, he calls to him in the street, calls him Sweet Hal, it is your friend Falstaffs. Hal ignores him, pretends not to hear him, until he keeps shouting and shouting until he turns on him. And he says, presume not that I am the thing that I once was. There's this Hal saying not only to Falstaff, but to everybody in attendance, that he will not be the king that he was as a youth. He will be proud. He will make his country proud of him. And he will rule justly. Falstaff is certain that he'll come to him in private, change everything. But the Lord Chief Justice immediately has Falstaff and his friends imprisoned until they can repent and be reformed. And that is the end of Henry IV, part two, leading perfectly into Henry V. And a matter of fact, it's so perfectly leading in, it even had an epilogue stating that. In the epilogue at the end of the play, they thank the audience for their promise to continue to watch these plays and promise them that another play is coming about the great King Henry V. They want their audience to come back they know that their story is not complete, and they've only set up three plays now to get us to this point. They're building towards Henry V. But they make two promises in this epilogue that is very difficult to live up to. The first one is that their friend Falstaff will return. <laughs> now, they say not only will their friend Falstaff return, but they'll also say you will witness the wooing and the merry marriage of Catherine of France to Henry V. This is indeed what happens in Henry V. But Falstaff isn't in Henry V. Matter of fact, he dies off stage and the audience hates it. The reason this happens is because of our dear friend Will Kemp, who played Falstaff. 
He got too big for his britches. He wanted more money. And when the company said no, he will continue to be paid just as everyone else is, he quit and left. The most popular player who played the most popular character walks out the door right before they bring Henry V to the stage. This is devastating for Shakespeare. Now, as I said in the first half, there was another play with Falstaff. It's the Merry Wives of Windsor, which I'll talk about in two weeks. And it actually came before Henry IV Part Two. but I, I really wanted to do all these histories together. So he doesn't quit until after Merry Wives of Windsor, but he quits before Henry V. And this leaves Shakespeare and Company in a very awkward place because they know people will come to Henry V to see Falstaff. He's been promised. The other thing they go out of their way to do in that epilogue is to tell everybody that Sir John Falstaff is not Sir John Oldcastle. As I said last week, the original name of Falstaff was Sir John Oldcastle. It was even left in some of the manuscript where it lists who speaks in different roles and Oldcastle is listed instead of Falstaff. This is because Shakespeare originally did intend it to be about John Oldcastle. But John Oldcastle, who was a, a Protestant martyr who fought against Catholicism and was a very popular person in English history, and two, he had prominent descendants who were still alive and still in London who did not appreciate their ancestor being treated like a buffoon. So Shakespeare hastily changed the name to Falstaff. I have no idea why he chose it in the first place. It's a very interesting idea. Why, why would you pick this guy who is obviously a hero? Some people point at it and say, well, this is a sign that Shakespeare himself was a closeted Catholic and he wanted to attack this martyr of Protestantism. Maybe. I think he just made a poor choice and he had to backtrack as fast as possible and change the name to Falstaff, which was another person who lived during Henry IV's time, but he had no descendants. So he was the perfect foil and the perfect name to pick to throw into the history. So they go out of their way to say Falstaff is not Old Castle, that great and wonderful martyr. It is indeed a whole different person, Falstaff himself. Meaning that controversy over Falstaff's name is still strong in everybody's mind when we get to Henry IV Part Two. This play was not as popular as Henry IV Part One, but the one thing that was just as popular, and matter of fact, immensely popular was Falstaff. And you can see this, that Shakespeare recognizes it in the writing. He spends as much time off in some corner with Falstaff and his crony friends as he does writing about Hal and writing about the king. In fact, Falstaff has more lines than Prince Hal. So this is an amazing character and it's about to fall back into Shakespeare's face. But the themes of the plays are redemption, and it was redemption that was necessary. Henry IV needs to be redeemed for taking the throne away from Richard II. And the only way he can be redeemed is if his son himself is able to succeed and take the crown from him, and he does. His son needs to be redeemed from his days of drinking and whoremongering and hanging out with Falstaff and Poins to becoming a powerful, moral, and proper king of England in Henry V. And that's exactly what you see take place, as Henry V is all about the king once again restructuring his power and going to war with, of course, France. They're always fighting France. Almost through all of the major histories here, there's really only one history to talk about, and he doesn't write it much later in his career when he writes Henry VIII. But this is a 
turning point for Shakespeare in that we are about to enter into his golden age. After we finish Merry Wives of Windsor, we're going to be moving in at breakneck speed to his classics, his greatest hits, his Hamlet, his Othello, his King Lear, his As You Like It, his most successful plays, most beautifully written plays. And we're also moving to the end of the Elizabethan era as Queen Elizabeth herself passes away and the crown is taken over by the Scottish king. King James VI of Scotland becomes King James I of England. And Shakespeare goes from being a member of the Lord Chamberlain's men to a member of the King's men. He becomes a master. He's given special cloaks and he becomes the throne's greatest playwright. Thank you all for joining me once again for Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. This closes out our look at the play Henry IV, Part 1 and 2. And next week, we'll hit Henry V. Thank you for joining me. Look for all past episodes at ShannonJRiley.com as well as here at KSEF Digital Radio, 75Live.com, and Apple, wherever you buy your podcasts. And remember, until we see each other again, keep it barred to the bone. Bye-bye. This is Sean, the poet, Stoke Poet and the Fool. Uh, listen to us on the 7s, AM, PM, FM, 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 LM, DM, DM, DM us if you want to listen to us on the AM and the PM and the FM, FM. Bye. <laughs>